Is it an industry or is it an opportunity? Hey, it's Seth, and this is Akimbo. We'll be back in a second to talk about the work we do. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Drought-proof gardens has become my obsession here in the now all-too-fiery Pacific Northwest. It's become that since my nine-year-old son asked me what we can do for climate change, and I said everything we can, anytime we can, wherever we can. And this is one small thing. They're planters that make it easy to garden, and so you also get to enjoy a new hobby that can take a little bit of load off the water needs and give you a refuge in your own yard. Look up sub-irrigated planters. I hope this helps somebody do something good. A little while ago, a friend of mine in the hospitality industry asked me to contribute some thoughts to his industry about how they can find and train and retain talented, skilled, hardworking people. In a second, I'll share that recording with you, but the highlight is this. When we think about this work we do, we can think about it as if it's an industry, but what industry wants is replication and efficiency and consistency. What it wants is to pay people the smallest possible amount. When it's an opportunity, however, we get to be artists. We can show up and say, what can I create here? When it's an opportunity, it's something we get to do, not something we have to do. Okay, here's the recording. Thanks for checking this out. Tomorrow, is Take Yourself to Work Day. Hey, it's Seth. 30 years ago, they started Take Your Daughter to Work Day, which is now Take Your Child to Work Day. Take Your Daughter to Work Day was designed so that parents, moms in particular, could show their kids what they did all day. So why is tomorrow Take Yourself to Work Day? Well, the reason is because industry for 100 years has worked really hard to push the rank and file, to push most people, to not bring themselves to work. Don't lead, don't take initiative, don't make decisions, don't do something that makes you a difficult to replace linchpin. Instead, do what I tell you to do. That in the early days of McDonald's, each person had an enormous amount of agency, but bit by bit, they built policies and machines and big red buttons and stopwatches so that people became a cog in the system instead of a human being showing up with their full self. And this industry, the hospitality industry, is at a crossroads. And there's a couple reasons for that. First one goes back to Duncan Hines over 100 years ago. Duncan Hines was a traveling salesperson. And what he discovered is that when you got to a new town, if you went to a tavern or a restaurant, you were likely to get sick because there was no health department. There was nobody looking out for you. So his first work that showed up in the public perception was a restaurant guy. And it was a sensation because he showed you safe places to eat. He then went on to work on safe ways to get food, canned food at the new kinds of supermarkets. And only after that did he become famous for the cake mix. But the thing about Duncan Hines is then expanded that move towards standardization by things like Restaurant Depot, where 
you can run a restaurant simply by driving to a giant big box store and buying lots of frozen items that you can reheat and plate. Or think about the ghost kitchen. I don't know who works in a ghost kitchen, maybe Casper, but the ghost kitchen is all about the fact that you can get food fairly fast and fairly cheap and fairly hot for not a lot of money. So what do we even need restaurants for? Not food. Food isn't a problem in most of the developed world in the sense that if you have money, if you're lucky and privileged enough to be able to have shelter and money, you can get food. Now, it's hospitality that people are looking for. And the thing is, hospitality and industry don't belong in the same sentence. Industry is about depersonalizing things in pursuit of efficiency. Hospitality is the opposite. Shouldn't be called the hospitality industry. Should be called the hospitality opportunity. Because what we have is an opportunity for people to feel seen, to feel connected, to feel like they are part of something. And if we want our customers to feel that way, we need our team to feel that way. They need to be a team. They need to be individuals we would miss if they were gone. We need to construct systems and training and expectations so that people can actually bring themselves to work. Is there an economic basis for this? I think there is. What's the difference between a $100 customer and a $5,000 customer? Oh, they come 50 times, not once. And as you know, there's a huge impact on the bottom line for a customer we don't have to go chasing and hoping for, for one who returns again and again. Why will that person come back? Because the spaghetti is cooked perfectly al dente? I don't think so. They're coming back because they like to feel seen, because they like to know that they were treated with hospitality. So back to this idea of bringing yourself to work. The opportunity that's available in so many job settings, particularly hospitality, is to be able to say to potential employees, we are here to have you have a better day, not one you can tolerate. We are here to work to pay you more, not work to pay you less. We are here to figure out ways to give you more agency and more independence and more ways to grow not fewer, that the entire system is organized in coherence and congruence with where you want to go, not with what simply increases our short-term profit. That if we can build a team, an actual team, peer-to-peer, of people who would miss each other if they weren't there, of people who are making decisions in the moment, in the spirit of generosity and hospitality, of being present, that team is much more likely to stick around. That team is much more likely to show up at work with their full selves, ready to connect to the person we seek to serve. So yeah, that means we're going to end up with a sous chef who puts in the extra 15 seconds of effort, even though no one's watching. Because sooner or later, someone, the customer, is watching. We're going to end up with a server who is able to go to a table, not as a servant, but as a participant in a drama, a participant in an interaction that actually creates value. Because human beings are now smart enough to know that from the freezer to the microwave to the table, not a lot of effort. It's more effort to go engage with the hospitality world. And if they're gonna put in that effort, if they're gonna put in that time and that money They want something in return. 
And that thing they're getting isn't calories. That thing they're getting is humanity, is dignity. The dignity they receive and the dignity they give. The chance to make things better by making better things. And that is what we can offer to our teams. A chance to show up and become who they would like to become. To be missed if they were gone. So that's my rant. Thank you for leading. Thanks for being part of this. Go make a ruckus. Thanks for listening. We'll be back in a second with some questions from previous episodes. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. No ad this week. In fact, an ad about the ads. If you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a new button up there. Let me explain it to you really quick. My friends run akimbo.com, a B Corp that hosts the workshops that you've been hearing about here. But the Akimbo podcast is separate from that. And so going forward, every once in a while, I will talk about some of the workshops my friends are running. But in the meantime, I'd like to talk about what you're interested in. In fact, I'd like you to talk about what you're interested in. So if you visit akimbo.link, you'll see a way that you can upload a 30-second ad for a nonprofit, for a cause, or even for a hobby that you care about. Nothing commercial, please. Of course, I can't promise I'll be able to include all of them. There are guidelines at akimbo.link about how to do it and what to include and not include. The focus is 100% non-commercial and non-profit. I can't wait to see what you've got going on. Hey, Seth. It's Maria. Hey, Seth. My name's Kyle. Greetings, Seth. This is Stephen out in Madison, Wisconsin. Hi, Seth. Alicia from Charleston here. Hi, Seth. This is Anupam. Hi, this is Caitlin. Hi, Seth. Warm greetings from Curacao. Hey, Seth. My name is Nick Ryan from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. Hey, Seth. This is Rex. Hey, Seth. Hi, this is Vasilis from Greece. Hi, this is Roberta Perry. My question is... And that completes my question. As you know, I do love to hear from you. If you've got a question about this or any previous episode, please visit akimbo.link, that's A-K-I-M-B-O dot L-I-N-K, and click the appropriate button. Three really juicy questions this week. Here we go. Hey, Seth. This is Chris from Utah. I was thinking about uh, your writer's block uh, post and then also just waves of productivity that I go through. And for example, I'm coming out of summer and uh, coming into the fall, and I find myself a little more productive than I was during the summer. And I, and I think that's okay. Um, but what I'd love to do is instead of having these wild swings of super productivity and then I, I, burnout's maybe too strong of a word, but just this this dearth of like, I'm tired. Um, and then a period again of strong productivity. And I'd love to, to level that out more and have more consistent uh, productivity with less of the the dearth. Um, and love to, to understand ideas or ways that you have kind of come to produce consistently at a good level and not um, end up with, with large periods of time where you're just not shipping or not delivering work. I appreciate everything you do. Uh, thanks so much. Thanks for this. The key part of your question has to do with the word productivity. Because if we think about productivity in the traditional sense, people who work on the assembly line, people who do surgery, people who are plumbers, they show up, they have a method, they have a list of incoming, and they do their work. It is possible to have a not great day, to be sort of uninspired, and still do great work as a plumber. You set them up and you knock them down. And in my work as a creator in these 35 years of making projects, 
I spend a lot of my time doing plumbing, that once the thing is organized, once I understand how to get from here to there, there is a method. It feels to me like your question is about the other part of your day or my day. And this is the part of the day where we face Pressfield's resistance. Because in those moments when we have to invent a new project, coin a new phrase, show up with truly creative blank slate work, the method fails us. There isn't a way to simply put one foot in front of the other. I was lucky to be able to walk 10 miles yesterday. It was a beautiful day. And I have to confess that very little creative thought went into walking those 10 miles. One step, then the other step, then the other step. And when you get to where you're going, you can say, I got to where I'm going. But deciding where to go paralyzes a lot of people. So my hunch is that what happens is we don't do it until we have to. And the have to can come from a lot of places. Maybe our creative itch is bored, and so the only way to do the next thing is to do the next thing. Maybe the rent is due. Maybe we're getting called on. Maybe the speech is scheduled. Something happens where resistance is overwhelmed by a need for some new experience or some new input. And so my short answer to your question is, don't beat yourself up. Make sure you have enough of a backlog for the other sort of work, the one step in front of the other kind of work, and then give yourself a break. And when it is time to face the resistance, we don't fight it, we dance with it. We understand that when it shows up, it's here because we're on to something. And in those moments, the hard work is to do the work even when we don't feel like it. But no, you can't be creatively productive all day, every day. Miles Davis couldn't do it. Bob Dylan can't do it. You can't do it either. Neither can I. Thanks for this. Hey, Seth. This is Dylan out in California. While I was listening to How Big Is Your Family, I was thinking about some of the courses you and your partners put on at Akimbo and how you all try to leverage status and affiliation. From what I remember, there was some visibility on the numbers of comments and reads on different posts. But I also remember your coaches trying to make sure every post had a comment. And I know that those comment comments made me feel part of the family when we were all being vulnerable with our work. So my question is, as a leader, how do you thoughtfully organize how status and affiliation is leveraged in a culture in hopes that it produces positive behaviors and a positive culture? And if you have time, I would love to hear where are organizations, and if you're up for it, my favorite organization being sports teams, where do they go wrong internally as they leverage status and affiliation? Thanks again, and thanks for your work. This is a great question. We learned a lot building the Alt-MBA and the Akimbo workshops, and I'm happy to share some of it. But basically, what it came down to is this. It turns out that if someone goes onto a discussion board and posts something and no one responds, they are far less likely to be a contributor going forward. If someone responds in a negative way, if they get trolled or pushed back or, or scolded, they are really unlikely to contribute going forward. But if they find affiliation, 
If they discover that someone is listening and glad to hear what they are saying, they are more likely to do it again. And so culture defines where status lies. And if status lies in being mean to newbies, which happens on places like Reddit and Discord, then people are going to be mean to newbies. On the other hand, if you build a culture, which also happens on Reddit and Discord and other places, where people are welcoming to newbies, that that gives you status, then people will do it more. And one of the challenges with sports teams, particularly, uh, I'm not even going to say particularly, in the pros and in the amateurs, is status is often allocated to people who simply have talent, who are heavier or taller or stronger or have better biceps than the other people. And that status gives them more playing time and more respect. And that playing time and respect lets them score more points, which gives them more status. And it doesn't matter if they're a bully or a misogynist or disobedient or unhelpful because they got status from doing the other thing, from being the Pete Rose on the team. And it turns out when we look at successful teams, teams, not individual performers, but teams, teams tend to perform better when status isn't allocated to the loner who's a jerk who scores more points. They tend to do better when there's an esprit de corps, when people are eager to work with one another. So we've got to think about who is dispensing status, who gets to decide who has a press conference, who gets to be player of the day, who gets a smile from the coach. Because the coach and the other people involved, the captain, the people on the team, have this chance to show up the way Ted Lasso did and say, we are a team and this is how you gain status around here. Thanks. I hope that was helpful. Hey, Seth. This is Samuel Martin from Orlando, Florida. I want to know why do you think American society is so afraid of death itself? Why is it not part of the process? So much is about growth, but not a, not much about the inevitable, like our demise. Not much is about it. Wow, this is a great question, and I've got some threads to begin answering it, but I don't have a definitive answer for you. I'll start with this. In the last 150 years, a whole bunch of things have shifted, particularly in my country. One, science that we got much better at understanding how human beings work and how to keep ourselves healthy. Two, science led to longevity, which means that people die much, much, much later than they used to. Three, science also led to family planning, which means that family size is significantly smaller than it used to be, which means you have fewer cousins and that combined with the fact that people don't die as early means that you are likely to go to far fewer funerals, likely to be exposed to that sort of wrenching early death than people used to be. And then on top of that, we built a culture that was based on commerce, that was based on brands, that was based on interactions with people selling you something. And what we know is that as folks get older, they are far less likely to change their purchasing habits, which means that marketers and organizations focus their energy on younger people who are making lifelong brand decisions, not older people who are sort of done. And on top of that, 
we see the diminishment of organized religion. And the organized religion that has persisted has largely, particularly in the largest denominations, been static. It hasn't changed very much. So when you add all of that together, what we see is that the culture pays less attention to old people. We see that people die later in life when fewer people are around them. We see that death is gradual, more expected, and in some ways less tragic and more boring. People slowly wear out, and by the time they're gone, they're gone. When we add all of those things together, plus an innate fear of death among pretty much all humans, we end up with a void. No conversation, no commerce, no innovation in terms of how we find spiritual solace about what we're going to do with the void that's in our life, the hole that is left when someone passes away. I think it's a mistake. And the last part I'll say about it is that since I was born in 1960, the world has been about the boomers. I'm one of the youngest of that generation. There were so many of them, and they came to power right when media and commerce were also gaining speed, that it has always been about what the boomers are going through, the Vietnam War, or rock and roll, or greed, and the whole idea of Wall Street, and then movies, right when people were at the peak of their movie watching, and on and on and on. We keep making it about us, and now the boomers are starting to die. And so, yeah, they're going to make it about them as well. So I expect that we're going to see more conversations about what death even means. But I think it's up to those with a spiritual bent to figure out how to help people see, understand, and talk about what it means to not be here anymore and what it means to lose people that we care about. So I'm no expert in this, but that's a little bit of thinking to get you started. Hi, Seth. It's Faith Popcorn again some years later. Thanks, everyone, for listening. We'll see you next time. There's a big problem that's changing everything about the world as we know it. Carbon and the impact of humans on the Earth. We talk about it with words like climate change and global warming. But there's just two really important things that you need to know about it. First, this is an overwhelmingly big problem. So much so that it's likely that you feel as though your choices don't matter in the face of it. Second, that overwhelming feeling that I just mentioned, it's intentional. It was put there by design. The industries that make the biggest environmental impact have a vested interest in you feeling overwhelmed and powerless. They've marketed, lobbied, and schemed to create that feeling in all of us. In short, we've been lied to. But here's the good news. There's a lot you can do to make a difference. And the other good news is that there's still time. The Carbon Almanac is a book and project about these problems and what we can do to solve them. It was created and run by volunteers on the premise that it's not too late, but none of us can fix this problem on our own. We need each other. There are many ways to get involved, but simply learning more is a great start. Here are three steps you can take. First, go to thecarbonalmanac.org and sign up for the Daily Difference emails. They give you a short thought and a practical action that you can take alongside thousands of others 
every day. Second, get the Carbon Almanac book. It's full of facts, articles, graphs, and art. It's beautiful and fun to engage with. It's all footnoted and fact-checked. And importantly, it's made by volunteers whose only agenda is to solve these systemic issues. You can find it wherever books are sold. Finally, since you're listening to a podcast, search for the Carbon Almanac wherever you're listening. You'll find the Carbon Almanac Podcast Network and a few shows featuring expert insight, discussion, inspiration, and ways to take action. There's even a show just for kids. Do what appeals to you. Just do something. There's still time to make a huge difference in the future of the planet, but we can't solve this on our own. Join us.